0: the athletic
1: The V10 era of Formula 1 lasted for 17 seasons, which as you'd hopefully agree after 6 series of this podcast has given us plenty of things to talk about from 1989 to 2005, and we won't be stopping anytime soon. However, we also fancy doing something a little different to end this series and that was to have a debate or argument, depending on your perspective, to come up with the list of the 10 greatest cars of the V10 era. To narrow it down before we even started, we've limited the cars we can choose from to Drivers' Championship winners, Then, today's guests, Ed Straw, Matt Beer and Ben Anderson, and me, Glenn Freeman, created our own top 10s from those 17 cars. Those lists have been combined and scored using the current F1 point system, because as much as we all love the era of 10 points for a win, only giving out points to the top 6 or the top 8, as they did in the V10 era, will be no use to us here. Our guests haven't seen each other's lists or the final rankings, so they'll be reacting to it live as we record this. Now, a new show format and everyone else on the show having no idea what's coming makes it quite challenging to come up with an opening question for this episode. So let's show some love to the cars which were ineligible for consideration. Ben, I'm going to throw this to you first. If we go for non-title winning cars from this era... If they were eligible, which car would you have been arguing perhaps for inclusion in the top 10?
2: Well, my heart wanted to go for the 1995 Ferrari uh, just because I thought it looked amazing, sounded amazing, and because Michael Schumacher said it was good enough to win the world championship after he tested it. Uh, but my, my head went for uh, that year's Williams, the FW17, um, basically because it was the fastest car on the grid that year. Um, 12 out of 17 races it took pole position but it only won five races um, basically because Williams just kept messing up Damon Hill particularly lots of errors Uh, slow pit stops poor strategy awful gearbox reliability Uh, yeah Williams basically made it too easy for Schumacher and Benetton that year but it was obviously a very good car
1: yeah, a great car and one that laid the foundation for a car that may or may not have made it into this list. Matt, you can go next. Which which non championship winner are you choosing? It's not even a race winner. It's the Jordan one nine one. I was actually I was gutted
3: that this was limited to championship winners only because I wanted to get completely left field in the, in the top ten. But um, it's it's the context of what that car achieved. Basically, if you look at the resources the team had, the inexperience, the fact that. It, it wasn't just the fifth in the Constructors' Championship. It could have won a race, not exactly on merit, a little bit of circumstances involved at Spa, but Giacchese has had a really strong shot at winning that at a track like Spa in, in that team's first year. And I just thought that was one of the greatest single achievements. And it wasn't a complete one off that that car was quick a lot of the time through that year. And given Jordan was completely new to F1, I think that makes it a phenomenal achievement for that particular design. So good work, Gary Anderson.
1: Yeah, I was going to say brownie points uh, for Matt from Gary Anderson and from the race's social media admin, Megan, who is responsible for all the pictures you see on our uh, social media feed of that car. Last but not least, then, Ed, which pre-qualifying backmarker nightmare are you arguing for? (laughs) Yeah, it was
0: quite difficult. Andrea Moder S921, Life L 190. I did give them some consideration, but I thought I'd probably play along and actually engage with the premise and go for something a little bit more successful. Slightly predictable choice, I'd have to say, but it's the Ferrari 641 of 1990. It won six races. Oh, what a choice. Alan Prost fought for the title. Aerodynamically superior to the McLaren MP45B that did win the titles that year, which is exactly why they signed Henri Duran, the aerodynamicist, to influence the 91 McLaren. In fact, Senna said of the 91 car, I can't drive a Ferrari, so McLaren built me one. So that tells you how influential the 1990 car was. And it worked really well across a wide range of ride heights. It was just really good aerodynamically. It wasn't just a car that was a bit limited like the McLaren was, it was just a really, really good package. And it also looks great as well. So cutting edge aerodynamically, it had the looks, had the success, but not quite the ultimate success. And one of the, well, probably the greatest Ferrari of this fallow period that they had.
1: Great choices there. And and in in Matt and Ed, we've chosen two of my three favourite F1 cars of all time. And, And the other one that hasn't been chosen is going to feature in this list a bit later on. I'm fascinated by what you've chosen there because I I knew I was going to ask myself this question and I thought they're going to take all the obvious ones and I'll have to come up with something left field. And my slightly left field choice was going to be the Jordan 199, the 99 car that could have won the championship. I thought it was a great looking car. I loved seeing Jordan take that step to become an almost front runner and the, the way they put pressure on a slightly weak McLaren and a Michael schumacher Ferrari. But um I'm not going to choose it because there's there's one car left that I was sure would be the first one picked. And I thought you might actually all choose it. And that's the 2005 McLaren MP4 20, probably along perhaps with the Ferrari that Ed chose. The most obvious example of a year where perhaps the best car didn't win the championship. An Adrian Newey masterpiece that was perhaps let down on the reliability side so I didn't expect that car to still be available but on the subject of non-championship winners we asked the race members club for their suggestions for what was going to be a short bonus section for this show but we received so many responses to that that we're going to do a bonus episode instead for our members so look out for that appearing after this series and uh, if you're going to need a Bring Back V10s fix between now and the new series coming out in January, you can still sign up to the Members Club anytime at the-race.com forward slash Members Club as we'll have a few other treats for you over the coming weeks. Also, make sure you check out the Bring Back V10s merchandise range we have on sale now. You can find T-shirts, hoodies, mugs, water bottles and notepads for sale over at shopthe And if you've not checked out the Race's new app yet, head to your app store of choice to make sure everything we do is just a tap away from the home screen of your device. It's free to download and you can set up a free account to set your preferences so you only get the content that matters the most to you. So for the final episode of the series, let's get some more shout outs in for our five-star reviews. Thank you to everyone who leaves us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, including LEGO Mind123, RCD, Noah C Erickson, Wowie Zowie Powie, V10 Loving Aiden, and Chill Baby. Thank you to everyone who leaves us a review or finds other ways to tell us how much you, you like the show. We we wouldn't still be here doing this after six series without your support, but as long as you keep listening to it, we'll keep making new ones. So let's get on then to Our first ever top 10 on Bring Back V10s. We're going in reverse order. So, we're going to start with the car that, across our combined votes, has come in 10th in the list. And it's the Williams FW19 of 1997. A car that claimed eight wins from 17 races. Ferrari got five that year. This was Adrian Newey's last Williams, although he didn't quite finish it off as he left Williams to go on gardening leave in late 1996. Uh, in terms of percentage pace, this was 0.6% faster than the next best car, which was the Ferrari. This car only got votes from myself and Ben, and even though it's Jacques Villeneuve's championship winner, even I only put it 10th. So, Ben, you can kick us off with this one. It was eighth in your list, which is really the only reason it made the cut. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm taking it back. i I'm taken aback.
2: I thought I thought it was a really, really strong car. Uh I felt like the driver lineup maybe made heavy weather of that season. Um, <clears throat> <a bit laughs> sorry, Glenn. Uh, a bit like, to be similar to 95, really, um, except that they got over the line. Um, only just, obviously. Um, yeah, um, you know, fast, uh, won almost half the races, uh, a lot of pole positions. Um, so I felt like it was basically a super quick car that, Underachieved. And also, when I was playing F197, it was the car I always wanted.
1: Good F197 reference as well. Uh, let's let's just find out then why Ed and Matt didn't like it. Ed, you, you can go first. Uh, was this close to making the cut for you? Yeah, it was. It
0: has a bit of a problem in that there's several groups of these cars. When you have ones that are closely related, sometimes I feel you have to pick one of them. And there is a related car to this one that I did pick. The other thing was I also wanted to stop your strategic voting because I thought you might have voted for a, a, a Jacques Villeneuve car to, to put it in. So it's very, very difficult to say there's anything wrong with putting it in there, but it's more just the mixture of what it what it fits in with in terms of, of everything else. So, yeah, I can't argue too strenuously against it. I think Ben's reasoning is, is perfectly sound. It was a very, very successful car, but it was just a little bit too similar to another car.
3: Yeah, I was a little bit like that as as well. I just felt like a, a sibling of this design did a better job of getting the job done. Now, of course, there were an awful lot of factors in 97. Tire war, Goodyear, being caught asleep. Uh, you know, I, I I like Villeneuve and and I was fans of both of them at the time, but they made very hard work of it, Frensen particularly. I think maybe and struggle was what put me off this Williams a little bit. I know a lot of and struggle was around how he fitted into the team and his approach to it, but I just kind of think if the car had been bit more trustworthy overall than someone of Frentzen's caliber would have actually won more than one race with it so um yeah slightly slightly convoluted logic based on Frentzen was so good in 99 Jordan that the Williams from 97 must have been a bit rubbish around the edges but that's that's what I'm going with it might just be
2: that the uh the 97 Williams didn't suit Frensen particularly well I mean obviously he was new into the team I hate him because he took Damon Hill's seat obviously uh, <laughs> but I think Villeneuve said it was his favorite car From his f1 career so would you
3: would you trust that as a as a measure of a genuinely good and drivable car though
2: well i mean it's true that he drove a lot of dogs uh but at the same time uh i think you know this is from obviously from a good period for him i think it was quite a stiff car quite tricky to drive um and Villeneuve obviously did get quite a lot more out of it so yeah maybe that that flattered him compared to frentzen and when Frensen obviously moved on, went to Jordan, things were a little bit more around him. So maybe he got the car a little bit more to his liking there.
1: We are obliged to mention, of course, that uh, this car, in Villeneuve's hands at least, was over two seconds faster than anyone else or any other car uh, in, the first, in qualifying for the first round of the season in Australia. I've always wondered if this car suffered from Newey not being there through the season to kind of stay on top of it. I put that theory to Patrick Head, uh, a couple of series ago when we spoke to him for a few things and um he kind of dismissed it he said the development war wasn't the same then as it is now and it wasn't a kind of case of constant iterations but i think ferrari made big steps that year what i would say in favor of this car is it was probably the most consistent over that season if you look if you consider ferrari mclaren and benetton as the other big hitters in that season All of those teams had weekends or even runs of races where their pace just completely went missing. The Williams, even on its bad days, was still in and around the hunt. So, yeah, it was a a good car. I'm certainly pleased that it got in. But contrary to Ed's belief, I didn't tactically vote it to, to make sure it made the cut. So thanks to Ben. getting it in let's move on to number nine then the renault r25 of 2005 fernando alonso's first title winner as we mentioned earlier on mclaren's mp420 was in many ways the the fastest car of that year mclaren won 10 races that year renault only claimed eight with this car I'm fond of this car because it brought to an end the Michael Schumacher Ferrari dominance of the 2000s. I think we should all be grateful that someone else came along and won a championship, but I didn't put it in my top 10 and neither did Ben, Uh, but it scored well with both Ed and Matt. Matt, you put this car seventh. Ed had it ninth. Why did you place it so highly? I think
3: it is a little bit of romance as much as technical merit cuz like you say it it was the car that stopped the Schumacher run and it and it made that it made that possible. Now, yeah, by not yeah, you know, not many races into the season the McLaren was the faster car that year and Kimi Raikkonen did lose an awful lot of points to poor reliability, but there are also a lot of races where Alonso was playing a long game as well. So, in terms of how that whole championship season was executed and and the fact that it did It was the car that ended an era that looked just a year before like it was never going to end okay the tire rules changing were a big part in that as well but you know Renault kind of burst through and toppled a bunch of teams that were probably more likely to interrupt Ferrari so I just think there's an awful lot to be admired in that design I'm a bit of a Team Enstone fan okay they've had their controversies and bizarre periods over the years but I think it that team's overall body of achievement in modern Formula One is really impressive given everything it's been through as well so yeah, there's lo- uh, maybe a bit more romance and technical logic behind it, but I just feel like it's a, a properly significant car as much as anything else. That um, mm, Maybe with two drivers as fast as Alonso in there, maybe an Alonso Raikkonen lineup up rather than Alonso
0: Fizzy might have looked a lot more impressive as well. It's an interesting one because this car actually, I'm almost tempted to disagree with myself and argue I should have placed it a place or two higher because brilliant. while it's not a car that dominated on pace, as we've said, the McLaren was quicker – well, cars are packages, aren't they? And part of the package is reliability. So that's one important element. It had good engine reliability. I think they only had one engine problem all year, Fisicella in, in Bahrain. But what it is, is a brilliantly integrated package. It had that 72-degree V engine. wasn't the most powerful engine, but it was torquey, very drivable, good fuel economy. You know, the whole car was reliable. It had that rearward-biased weight distribution Lots of aero opportunity created in it. It was quite a light car, so they had the ballast to switch around the weight distribution as they wanted. That extreme Coke bottle at the back, the aggressive sidepod undercut. They modified the rear suspension to make sure they optimised the diffuser. So there was an awful lot about this car that was nice. And it's it's not one that's got a big obvious calling card other than its success you can't say oh it's got this magic bullet or this brilliant idea but it showed a team absolutely in command both on the engine and the chassis side of what they wanted from a car it's an absolute pure package and Fernando Alonso is part of that and they developed it very very well throughout the year it had a lot of potential in it they were doing it all the way through to the end of the year throwing new bits onto it so I think actually this car is a little bit of a hidden gem It does have that great bonus of being the car that broke the Ferrari run of success and introduced Fernando Alonso to the wider world. But I think it was also a really, really good car in so many ways. It ticked all the boxes. It was like a 9 out of 10 on absolutely everything. And there's not many cars like that.
1: It had a great, great livery as well. Uh, As Matt said, uh, it doesn't always have to be technical. It can be romance. I really liked this era of Renault's. Uh Ben, as as we mentioned, uh it didn't make the top 10 for you. Any any particular reason?
2: I was close. Uh mainly for similar reasons to Matt really that you know there's a romantic argument about its place in Formula 1 history, how it ended that run of Schumacher titles. You know, I I almost fell in love with Formula 1 again because of Alonso in that car finally doing that after so many years of the same same old story and obviously I was searching around for for something to believe in again because it had been a long time since Damon Hill had stopped racing so it was a hard period for me as a Formula One fan Uh, but ultimately that season I just felt like the McLaren was a better car you know it was quicker Um, we did quite an in-depth story about that season's McLaren and I remember interviewing Paddy Lowe for it and he said you know, they really should have won the championship that year. They tried some um, clever trickery with the the gearbox, I think, and a seamless shift system, um, trying to find you know, those those extra hundreds and tenths of a second that they probably didn't need, really, and that really let them down in the early part of the year. I think Raikkonen was superb that season, let down by the team, really, and he should have been world champion. So when I was considering this car for the top 10, I just felt like it wasn't the be- best car of that season It's kind of what Ed was saying, just they made made
1: more of what they had than McLaren did. Okay, on to number eight next in our list, and it's the Benetton B195, the 1995 car that claimed Benetton's only constructor's title. 11 wins between Michael Schumacher and Johnny Herbert. Next best was that Williams FW17 we mentioned earlier, which only claimed five. And as Ben discussed earlier, the Williams was the faster car over one lap. This car scored pretty well. It was eighth in my list. Ben had it ninth. Ed put it sixth. However, it didn't make Matt's top 10. So before we let Matt explain that, we'll come to Ed. Tell us why you put it in your top six.
0: Yeah, again, it was... A car that you can make a case that it wasn't the quickest car of the year. In fact, the Williams probably did have a bit more pace on it, but it was also the culmination of a team that was just so much better across the board. It was perfectly tuned to what Michael Schumacher needed. That really worked well. Followed on from the 94 car, obviously, in terms of concept. And I do like this run of Benetton's, the cars that have their roots in that Reynard F1 design that never was. So. This was a really important run of cars in terms of the aerodynamic concepts and that desire, you know, to have the high nose and get the airflow under, under the front of the nose to, to get the floor working. Of course, they had to adapt it to take the Renault engine and that was actually a really big change a bit of a bigger challenge than they thought it was going to be and they had all sorts of problems with hydraulics and the gearbox early on partly as a response they had a lot of troubleshooting to do but then they really got it right and through all of that it was still a car that Schumacher could get the best out of it was pretty consistent and it won something like 11 races and again you have that clash between what's the best car is it the quickest car or is it the most effective car and then you start to argue well what's more effective how much of this was Benetton and Schumacher just being better than Williams with David Coulthard and Damon Hill that was certainly a big part of it but hugely successful car and I think it was also nice to have a Benetton that there weren't question marks over because rightly or wrongly there are a lot of question marks about the B194 but there's no such thing about the B195 it was just a hugely successful car yeah credit to Schumacher but it just was very very good and it had that romanticism of just being Benetton still seen as a little bit of a smaller team still a big team but they, they weren't Williams or McLaren or Ferrari so there's that romanticism to it as as well and some brilliant drives by Michael Schumacher as well.
1: Come on, Matt give us the counter argument? I I just don't think
3: uh, okay, they're all championship winners so no, none of these cars are rubbish but out of all the 17 we were considering it just feels to me like the car this was the car where the car itself was the smallest percentage role in the championship victory compared to how Schumacher was driving it. The strategies that benetton were pulling off looking at looking at qualifying results and particularly the kind of handling based circuits where the williams was was quicker once williams had got on top of a few of the early season problems you know results wise there was so little to argue that this was the quickest car in the field and yet schumacher had the title sewn up two races early and and such a big points margin such a big win tally and i i really would put most of that down to what schumacher was doing, which doesn't mean this was a rubbish car but I I kind of believe Schumacher's assertion that he might have won the championship more easily in that year's Ferrari and that really the Benetton was somewhere around Ferrari pace. Maybe its true pace was halfway between the miracle Schumacher was pulling off and the kind of unsettled Johnny Herbert performance that wasn't really even Johnny Herbert's true best. So yeah, a a great car, definitely. A title-winning car still, certainly. But its its driver was taking it to higher peaks than than anyone else would have done. So for that, it probably... I I deleted like 11th to 17th in my final list before sending it. So I can't remember if it was like 11th or 12th or last or whatever, but yeah, this this was a this was a a drivers' championship and the constructors in a way too, won by the driver, I would say, and the strategists.
1: That's an interesting take. I, I think for me it was it was that moment of we'd heard so much from Benetton about how they'd been trying so hard to get hold of Flavio Briatore, had been trying so hard to get hold of a Renault engine, his team finally got one and it took Schumacher and the team just to another level in terms of particularly race performance. This was when we really saw how unstoppable Michael Schumacher could be. As Ben's talked about the the 95 Williams already. I, I think this car maybe was flattered by... I place a lot of the Williams failure on the drivers. I think they both made too many errors. But yeah, I just feel that this was the kind of Benetton had been building up you know we've been approaching this crescendo and we finally got it when they got that Renault into the back of this car and I think it helps it helps when your second driver gets a couple of wins as well I think everyone was happy to see Johnny Herbert win some races um after a difficult first few years in the 90s so maybe that helped it in my eyes as well let's move on to number seven ...in the list. Uh, Ben will be happy that we've got to this car. It's the Williams FW18 of 1996. It claimed 12 wins with Hill and Villeneuve from just 16 races. Ferrari had three. Under the old points system of 10 for a win, Williams won the Constructors' Championship by 105 points. This car was half a percent faster than Ferrari over one lap, which I actually thought was surprisingly low. The highest rating this car picked up from us came from me as i placed it fifth ben and ed had it seventh and matt put it a lowly eighth so yet again matt <laughs> you're the uh you're voting all these cars down what was it about this car that meant it was only eighth for you uh,
3: partly actually just strength of competition but also i just feel like this was partly a season where the opposition wasn't at its greatest as well you know ferrari was a- but
1: is that because williams obliterated them you know it, it did the competition look rubbish because the Williams was so good?
3: No, that Ferrari just was rubbish. You know that that, <laughs> was, that wasn't a comparison. That Ferrari was terrible, and Benetton was basically being driven backwards by its drivers that year. So, I, I it it made the cut above some other cars that might have been more likely in my in my list because I felt like I had to give that that family of Williams a bit of credit for. You know, it should have won a 95 title if it had been driven better. It should have made it, had an easier path, the 97 title, if it had been driven better. So that that whole, that family of Williams concepts deserved a place in the top 10. But yeah, I've got too many question marks over a Damon Hill, Jacques no Driven Car, which I know is like going to annoy 50% of the rest of this podcast panel. But...
1: Ed loved Damon Hill as well.
3: Oh yeah, I've just annoyed everybody. But yeah,
1: I... I, I just found
3: it too hard to get a read on what that car was really worth given how unsettled the rest of the pack was that year in terms of driver changes, technical changes, concept changes, that sort of thing. So definitely a great Williams. I've only placed like a, one position below that most of you and It's not like I hated it.
2: I think, in, I think in fairness, Matt, I mean, I'm a, you know, self-confessed Damon Hill fan, but in my notes, I did put a car so good it made Damon Hill a world champion. So I accept, Whoa. That, you know, he, at that time, he wasn't anywhere near the best driver on the grid. Obviously, I supported him obviously but um, the fact he was able to dominate that season shows that that car was really really exceptional and yes I think Ferrari I agree Ferrari and, and Benetton kind of dropped the ball. No, Ferrari just misread the rule book basically and Benetton employed tuggers to drive their car. <laughs> uh, so at that stage you know Berger and Lacey were past their best I think. Um, But I think you have to give Williams credit for interpreting the new high cockpit side rules very effectively, building on, you know, what was a very good car the previous year, as I've outlined. Um, So I would have had this car higher, I think. um, But for the fact, I think, as Matt said, the opposition were a bit weak
0: and I don't think the driver lineup was the strongest. I think I'd argue at this stage Hill was a driver who'd taken a good step into 96. He wasn't Michael Schumacher, obviously, but who is? Very, very few are. I think this car obviously is connected to the FW19 that I rejected because the 19 was an evolution of the 18, and the 18 built on the in some ways on the, the 95 car as, as well. But I think the thing that gave it the edge for me, Ben alluded to it, that interpretation of the cockpit sides was really intelligent. And also it was reflective of a Williams team that was catching up a little bit with the cleverness of the Benetton team in terms of they did things like modifying the seating position and making some suspension configuration all of these things just to make the packaging that bit better particularly to work for Damon Hill who was not the smallest driver in the world so there were lots of clever things about it that I think elevated it and make this one a step of a car the 95 car was good and it was underused but This was just a much more together package, I think, across the board and also reflected the growing influence and stature of Newey in that team, who'd obviously started out basically doing the aero when he was there, but he's becoming more and more and more your de facto technical director, even though Patrick Head was the technical director at that time. So it's kind of the peak of those mid-90s Williams is for me which is why I, I put it in but it's twinned with the 97 car quite frankly so there's a bit of a split vote there I think
1: it would have been awfully careless if Williams had lost Adrian Newey by the end of that season wouldn't it <laughs> um, no chance they wouldn't do, they wouldn't do that
0: best era nah, they wouldn't around. be that stupid that would no. condemn them to years of mediocrity so why would they do that
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly um, yeah you know, I, I think you touched on something really important there Ed which was the the loophole they found in the rules with the headrest. You know, what what Adrian Newey did in that area of the car that year defined how everyone else designed that part of their car for a decade until the headrest rules were changed. its I'm always impressed, I think, with, with any team that gets a jump start or, or comes out the blocks flying with new rules because the field's kind of had a reset. There's an opportunity for everyone. If you come out and do the best job, yes, you can argue that that means... The other teams haven't done a good enough job, which flatters you. But I'd say everyone's had the same opportunity. You've done such a good job that you've made them all look bang average, even if that Ferrari was absolutely hideous. Uh, let's move on to number six in the list, then, which is another Williams. It's the FW15C of 1993. Potentially, I think we could say the most, one of the most sophisticated F1 cars of all time before driver aids were outlawed for 1994. Alain Prost claimed his fourth and last title with this. The car took 10 wins with Prost and Hill. The next best was McLaren claiming five with Ayrton Senna. This car had the biggest single lap pace advantage of any car we were we debating today or we could choose from. 1.7% faster on average over a single lap than a McLaren being driven by one of the greatest qualifiers of all time, Ayrton Senna. I had this car sixth in my list. Ben and Matt both had it fifth. The reason it hasn't cracked the top five is because Ed didn't put it in his top 10. Now, Ed, Whoa. I know you love the 1993 season, so why do you hate its championship-winning car so much?
0: Well, it's funny, because it's one that I either basically had to put first or omit entirely, and it's again down to this.
1: <laughs> That's not how it's this But works. it's
0: again down to this question <laughs> of how you connect families of cars. Yeah, It was absolutely the most dominant car of the era, stunningly good, but it's also very, very connected to the Williams FW14B, which I hope we'll talk about later. We might not. I couldn't possibly say. (laughs) It became a bit of an either-or for me. It was a brilliant car, but it's not the Williams that's remembered, and that was kind of the clincher in the end. The 93 Williams is almost an incidental car. It probably shouldn't be, but just because you had Prost almost coasting to the title in what was a supremely good car means it loses a little bit of that lust. So I've started to approach this in terms of picking the greatest 10, and so it's just another one of these cars that I felt I had to pick one or the other. But I certainly wouldn't say either of you are wrong to put it in the, your top five. In fact, I'd say probably if you're going to put it in there, you need to put it even higher. So... You're all wrong on both counts, as far as I'm concerned with this car. Brilliant car, but there are reasons it doesn't make my list, which I know sounds a bit contrary, but you've got to choose what your criteria are and avoid ending up having these whole runs of cars coming in where you're taking pigeon steps between them. That's the way I looked at it anyway.
1: Fair enough. Uh, Ben, do you think Ed touched on something there? Does this car perhaps suffer from the fact that Alan Prost kind of cruised to the title. You know, imagine what this car could have done if it had had Nigel Mansell wringing its neck.
2: Yeah, potentially. Um, I, I'm surprised that Ed would have, say, the Williams FW19 in the list, but not this one, if you're talking about the families of cars and their evolution. Because for me, this is the of that period of Williams's, it's the ultimate Williams, you know, peak tech for that team. Peak tech for Formula One before the rules changed to kind of outlaw a lot of the driver aids and what have you. Um, The fact that Damon Hill won three races in that car out of nowhere, um, having been promoted, I thought that said a lot for how good it was. Even Prost, obviously, no, he was a phenomenal driver, but I think at this stage of his career, you know, he's on the way out. And the fact he won the championship so convincingly um, just spoke volumes to me, really. I think I'm almost half agreeing with Ed that it should maybe be higher, Um, especially when you mentioned, you know, the pace advantage it had over the rest. I mean, that's quite phenomenal. Um, But I also feel like maybe, you know, Senna drove superbly that year, but McLaren were a bit of a mess at that stage after Honda's departure, scrambling around for engine deals, not having the best of Ford. And I feel like maybe, you know, if that situation had been different, then Senna might have given williams and prost a bit more of a run for their money so they were slightly flattered that year but it was still an incredible car and um that's why it made my
3: top five i I just end up placing it fifth out of sort of massive indecision so going for like a nice in the middle sort of spot (laughs) basically combining your two arguments it's like obviously it's, it's the most sophisticated f1 car ever and you assume it must have been a bit quicker than the 92 Williams, but you don't have those iconic moments to put with it, even though it had that that qualifying pace dominant stat because Senna was in a hobbled McLaren, it was harder to judge. And like, you know, Prost was doing what needed to be done to win that last world championship and then go. Damon Hill was in that car going, what am I doing racing this car? How has this happened? And, <laughs> and yeah, I'm and doing his very best with it, but massively inexperienced at the front of the grid. Um, I'm really impressed with what he did do that season, but... I have no clue how fast that car really was and, and whether it really was refined to the next level as as you'd assume from 92 or, or whether actually maybe they had gone too far on some things. But I'm intrigued to know what Mansell would have done with it. Um, so yeah, it ended up fifth because I thought it must be at least as good as the 92, but because of the driver changes that year, because of McLaren taking a step backwards, I find it just very hard to judge how good it really was. Oh, it did have something like the Hedgehog on it as well, which was you know, worth a little bit.
0: <laughs> we should say as well, they did Pioneer ABS that year. That was the first time that was used in Formula One. That was the the additional bit of tech there. But also, there were a few slight changes on the car because they changed the weight distribution a bit as well, made it a little bit unstable under braking, so it turned in a little bit more aggressively. So that question about Mansell, he would have found the car a little bit different to its predecessor. And some of that rear instability that came would have been down to the the tire chain uh, tire sizes changing a little bit as well so there's maybe a little bit of a hint of a potentially even a, a backward step there but the, this car was so brute force quick that you just can't really see because these little differences didn't really affect anything because it didn't have the competition and that's one of the things that I've, obviously you kind of have to factor in in that it had a hobbled mclaren who didn't have a works engine deal uh, we're using the the Cosworth, so the opposition was weakened. Obviously, Ferrari were a complete mess at that stage. So that, that plays into it as well. So, yeah, great car. but Well, a brilliantly successful car, but just one that hasn't quite found a place in the pantheon of greats with that extra X factor, should we say. Even though it should, because everything it did was brilliant, really. But it just lacks something.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. McLaren would definitely held back. Not only did they get downgraded to a Ford V8, but they weren't even on the the best Ford V8 spec for a a lot of the season. Although I think maybe what also works against this Williams is that there was some talk as the year went on that McLaren's chassis and maybe even some of its driver aids were were either getting on the level of Williams's or maybe even surpassing them. Williams would argue, of course, that if they they knew it was probably all going to get banned, so they'd backed off. Development. Let's move on then to our top five, and coming in in fifth place is the McLaren MP4 13 of 1998. Mika Akinan's first championship winner, Adrian Newey's first McLaren, the first car built to the new narrow track and grooved tyre rules, Bridgestone's first title in just its second season of full time F1 competition. The car claimed nine wins to Ferrari's six, and it was 0.7% faster than Ferrari. This car was seventh for me. Ben and Matt had it sixth, but the score that made all the difference here was Ed, who put this car second. So Ed, tell us what made this car so special. One
0: of the things I often look for is what I call kind of start of line success. And obviously the rules changed very significantly in 98. So it was a narrow track cars. The groove tyres came in. So this was the car that out the box was just stunningly good for those new rules. And that gained it a little bit of extra credit for me. It also had some good innovations on it. It had the brake steer famously. That Briefly. was a 97 McLaren innovation. So that predated it but it did have it yes yeah, certainly initially but they made a lot they, they just made a lot of good decisions with it getting that center of gravity low they did a lot of work to make sure it was quite easy on the tires obviously they switched to the groove tires that year Lengthened the wheelbase for arrow opportunity which was a regular feature of formula one that was to come in and that, but that was the point where they thought actually longer the wheelbase the more error opportunity we've got and it was just hugely successful funnily enough I remember it being a little bit grating when I first saw it because the first time we saw any real coverage of it was probably qualifying in Australia and I remember distinctly looking at it and thinking that looks like an F3 car because it was so narrow so it didn't make a great early impression but it was just a car that was nailed. Obviously, it was the start of the new era at McLaren as well. So this was sort of setting the tone for that little mini era of F1. So the reason it was so high up for me was just because it has that quality to it. And it's it's a car that's gained a certain amount of iconic status. I saw Mika Hakkinen demoing the car a few years ago and it attracted a lot of attention and there's a great connection to it. So for me, this is kind of the McLaren of the of the silver era, let's put it that way.
3: Everything Ed says is completely right and in terms of dominant pace out of the box, what it did in Melbourne, um, how boring it made Spain that year, those those sort of markers of what a car's performance actually is. You know, absolutely phenomenal, definite contender for top three of the era. Could not be anywhere near that for me because it's just so offensive, that rule change that year. That switch to narrow track and groove tyres is the most ridiculous backward step of an F1 Tech rule change that has ever happened. Binning off the absolutely gorgeous era of cars that predated that to replace them with these little squeaky joke toys i just yeah on those grounds it had to be lower than it really merited for me because just like, ugh, i just just chuck that whole year's grid in the bin and set them on fire was is is my kind of default start stance about about that area also i don't think ferrari was a lot slower by the middle i think hacking in didn't get the job done particularly well Consistently through the year. He had some amazing races, obviously. Um is my favourite hack-in performance of all time, possibly how relentless he was there. Um Schumacher was driving brilliantly, but I do think there was less to choose between the cars by the end, so it did get reeled in.
2: Yeah, I think Matt makes a good point about the advantage being eroded. I and mean, this car almost ruined F1 for me as well, because it just was so dominant at the start. And I thought, oh, this is not this is not what I want to see. But I'm quite interested in Ed's argument about the the start have a lineage because you don't have the Benettons of 94 and 95 anywhere near as high as this one but obviously the rules changed massively from 93 to 94 and Benetton were a team that went from being okay kind of knocking on the door to fully fledged title winners so why are they so low and why is this McLaren so high when they've kind of done similar things in a different period
0: I've just got to address the the point of the the being caught by Ferrari there was an element of that but it is, on average, the fourth most dominant car of the era, and it was faster uh, It had the fastest lap at the first thirteen events. Ferrari was only quicker at three events. So I think it's possible to slightly overstate how much advantage was uh, uh, the advantage was was pulled back. But you want you once told me that the fastest lap was the uh, recourse of the fool. Uh, <laughs> if, if you're if you're talking about race fastest laps, yes. However, I'm talking about outright pace fastest laps which are usually be set in qualifying so uh no this is not the uh this is not the refuge of the uh, of the fool so that was a, that was another thing with it and inevitably you're going to see a, a, a pace advantage be eroded probably at the start of a of a lineage of cars at the start of, of the rules so i think there was a certain inevitability to to that but i don't think we should overstate that too much it was on average the fourth most dominant
1: car of the bringback v10s era Okay, good diversion there. Now uh, answer Ben's question. What was Ben's question? I was too busy. uh... Yeah, I knew you weren't (laughs) listening.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I slightly uh, dismissed it in my head. I I didn't listen to it first time around. I did actually have the Benetton B194, the 94 Benetton in my list, but there are some uh, contentious issues about that that probably damaged it it, uh, a little bit. But I presume we're not going to encounter it (laughs) higher up in this list. Who knows? Someone might have uh, have voted for it at, at the top. It received two tenth places. Now, there we go. So it hasn't quite uh, quite made the cut. So I see it as a, a little bit different. And also, it depends what sort of rules you're looking at. Obviously, that was a Gizmos era rule change. This was more a fundamental aero rule change and kind of setting the pathway. But I do uh, have quite a lot of time for the Benetons of, of that era as well. Maybe the 195 was part of the lineage of that. But because ultimately it, it wasn't dominant, for a period, even though it had dominant success because it didn't have the pace advantage, that moved the McLaren up. So I, I tend to think of this as a, a car for that era, and yeah, the, the, the starting point because it it was so successful for a pretty
1: major rule change. Let's move on to number four in the list. Then it's the McLaren MP4-5 of 1989, the first championship winner of the V10 era, ten wins. Out of 16 races for Prost and Senna, the next best was Ferrari with just three. It it fell five wins and 58 points short of the MP4 fours totals from 1988, but still a dominant car, 1.4% faster than the Ferrari over a single lap. We all had this in our top five. It was third for me. Ben and Matt had it fourth and Ed had it fifth. Ben, was the oldest car eligible for this list always going to be one that had to feature high up? Yeah, I think so. Um, and you mentioned the its predecessor, the eighty-eight car. I mean, that's
2: you know often cited before Mercedes came along in the hybrid era and started cleaning up as like you know the most dominant car of all time. They you know, should have won every race of that season. This car, not quite as successful, but almost. I mean, ten wins from sixteen races, but should have won Canada, should have won Japan. Should have won Australia, had almost a clean sweep of pole positions. And there's a slight bias for me in terms of outright speed. I like to bias towards the quickest cars, I think. Um, it was only three-tenths away from a clean sweep of pole positions that season's Almost double the points of any other team, more than Williams and Ferrari put together. And then there was a B-spec that was good enough to win the double in 1990 as well. So, you know, to sort of Ed's point that he's made previously about lineages of cars and progression... You just had a fantastic baseline there, didn't you, that achieved enormous success for McLaren, even though there was major rule change through that period.
0: It also carries a little bit of the luster and the glory of the mp 4 4 of 1988, which is a car that was not eligible for this. Obviously, it, it was built on that switch to the normally aspirated car, so they had to put the, the big airbox on it. But still, it was connected to that low line car. So there's a, there's a little bit of reflected glory almost in this car, in one that... There's not a stunningly brilliant story, too, but it was just brute force, brilliantly effective.
3: Yeah, for me, the fact this is kind of like the '88s car taking its place in in this list. So very similar argument to Ed for me. And I think as well, the uh, uh, the quality of opposition has a big part in my in my votes. And actually, you know Williams was was making some headway with Renault that year. Ferrari had its uh, radical and unreliable, but also really impressive car that would go on to nearly win a title with with Prost the following year. So. Yeah, the competition was closing and yet still this McLaren was good enough, even with a completely different engine, to have that level of performance and, and points margin. So, yeah, it was sim- similar circumstances to the 92 Williams and 93 Williams, but actually the 89 McLaren was more impressive relative than the 93 Williams was to the 92.
1: I'd, I'd agree with that point about the opposition. As great as the MP44 was, a car we don't really ever get to talk about here, the the ninety, the eighty-nine car was at least on a more level playing field, technically. You know, F1 had the, the turbos versus normally aspirated. McLaren and Honda took advantage of that with one last phenomenal turbo car. So it didn't really have much level playing field opposition. Whereas in eighty-nine, they did. Everyone was brought back to to normally aspirated. I prefer this car to the MP4-4, and I, I'm not entirely sure why. Maybe it's just because '89 was when I started watching F1, which might be why this uh, we we chose a podcast that starts in '89. Um, Ben's point was really good though as well. There, there were so many small margins here that prevented McLaren from almost repeating what they did in '88, and in some ways, I think that was that was more impressive. I also find it interesting though that I think if if people were to name a memorable or iconic car from 1989 it's going it's often the ferrari because it was the first paddle shift car so that it feels like this car doesn't is another one on our list that doesn't perhaps get the credit it deserves because something else came along that maybe didn't wasn't capable of beating it much that year but it was game the ferrari was game changing for f1 you know all the cars have paddle shifts now and it can all be traced back to 1989 i think
2: also in a year
1: where you know, the drivers were falling out with each
2: other massively and going to war. I know sometimes that can help because they're driving each other on to new levels, but it wasn't exactly the most productive atmosphere at McLaren by that stage. Uh, and obviously their their rivalry cost that car some better results as well. Um, I think that it just really stands out considering things were not all well at that team at that time either.
0: I just like the fact that this was the car that Ron Dennis hoped would put right what went wrong the year before, when they almost won all the races, and then immediately they didn't win in Brazil, which was brilliantly funny. But (laughs) it is is for the reasons we discussed, a car that gets slightly subsumed into the Prost-Senna narrative, isn't it? There's a few little narratives around here. So it's all about the 88 car, and then 89 is all about Prost and Senna exploding, and the car almost gets forgotten because there is some interest in the Ferrari with the semi-automatic gearbox, and then... As I was saying earlier, the 1990 Ferrari is very exciting. So this is kind of a a period where almost we take McLaren for granted, but
1: very, very effective car. We're into the podium places now then. In third place, it's the Ferrari F2002, which wouldn't you know it's from 2002. Ferrari won 15 out of 17 races that year, although one of those is with the previous year's F2001. This car won the constructor's title by 129 points. Michael Schumacher won the driver's title in July, and Schumacher was 94 points clear of the best non Ferrari driver, which was Juan Pablo Montoya. Schumacher had 144 points to Montoya's 50. I think we could say this car was basically responsible for F1 finally deciding to tinker with the rules to close up the competition. Of course, for 2003, we had one shot qualifying, a new points system to keep the title race closer, and drivers qualifying on their race start fuel loads in an attempt to mix up the grids and add some strategy variety. Interestingly, on pace, this was only 0.2% faster than the Williams over one lap although perhaps we could argue that was more down to the the one-lap specialities of BMW's engine and one Pablo Montoya's qualifying. Ben and I had this car second, Matt had it third. For Ed, it was only fourth. So Ed, why are you not perhaps as enamoured with this car as the rest of us? I do like this car, but
0: yeah, it just lost out. There's another Ferrari I put ahead of it and there's a few others. I want a little bit of variety in there. And it's funny because this part of the F1 history sort of blends into a morass of just red cars doing well doesn't it but there are some very clear peak years and the f2002 is very much that one and it's another car that it reflects ferrari one of those rare periods where it gets its act together and this is actually where ferrari in that period i think starts to peak in that it's just so well integrated they've got so much good technology simulation technology great ideas going into the car it's the most aerodynamically efficient car on the grid they had the compact gearbox they tightened the rear bodywork dramatically so compared to some of the competitors to make sure the rear and the Coke bottle area diffuser was all working as well as it could it was reliable it was consistent it won straight out of the box so there was so much that was good about this car that summed up Ferrari there is maybe a little bit of a question mark about some of the opposition because Williams are a little bit untidy at this stage not always dependable but yeah, for me, the F two thousand two is a great car, but it just doesn't quite get into the the top three positions for me, just because there's a few others ahead of it, which is a fairly prosaic way of putting it. <laughs> but it's also a car I like because it's kind of the end of line for the non park firm A cars. So after this, you do have fueling qualifying, you do have limited changes, the cars get a bit heavier. So it's actually the last example of almost that old traditional. F one that had been taken to a ridiculous degree with the way they were rebuilding cars overnight, etc. So it also represents something I think quite special.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. I think this car gets overlooked because of what followed two years later, which I think is not a spoiler to know that we're going to get to that car at some point before the end of this episode. I just like the fact that, that there was no there was no messing about with the rules going on here. As Ed said, that this was kind of still classic, straightforward F one. Perhaps we could say in its purest sporting form and, and Ferrari just just blew everyone away. Ben, you had this second, so it's not quite got as high as, uh, as you ranked it. So for you, is this, regardless of era, is this an all-time great, not just a V10 great for you? Yeah, this is right up there. Um, for a lot of the reasons you've outlined, you
2: know, the rules having to be changed in multiple ways to drag a team back is always a sign that that team is doing an exceptional job I think you know so many victories although one of them obviously was for the, the previous year's car it still won 14 races I think out of 17 that's incredible so only two non, non-Ferrari wins all season um, still a good number of poles so you know maybe not the outright quickest but it was obviously incredible in race trim and if, I think any season where the team is basically taking the piss out of Formula One, doing obvious team orders, formation finishes. Uh, you know, that's that's a sign that you've just got a massive performance advantage in hand. And I think to the question of opposition, I feel like by this stage, you know, BMW have been in the game. This is their third season with with Williams. So they've had enough time to to get on top of things. McLaren have obviously been a force with Newey for a, a while by this stage. So, For Ferrari to still be so far ahead even though those teams were quite settled I think speaks volumes to to how well integrated and put together this car was.
3: Yeah I think the tyre situation being slightly in its favour helped a little bit as well because but that was part of the whole integration Ferrari and Bridgestone were just throwing everything in with each other and to hell with the rest of Bridgetown's customers, basically. Uh, you're you're right, Ben. The opposition wasn't bad either. Yeah, you know, the Williams was a bit blowy uppy and a bit scruffy at that point, but it was it was quick, and that wasn't a disastrous McLaren. But yeah, you know, Ferrari Ferrari was making it obvious which team was going to win every single race at the start of the weekend. There was no competition in that season. Uh, Glenn, when you said that Ed can't have been that enamored with this car to he put it forth, my my entire top three is cars I I hate and resented at the time because they were just absolutely crushing my favorite sport and making it just unenjoyable. (laughs) And and this is a a prime example of one that just destroyed the competition. And it is is far from the first dominant car in F1, but it it was the one that made the penny drop even in the Ecclestone-Mosley era that actually F1 did need to be a bit more entertaining than the kind of nonsense that 2002 was throwing up.
1: I feel like it's been quite therapeutic, particularly with Matt and Ben relaying to us all the times they almost lost all faith and hope in F1. I guess that's what dominant cars can do to you. I, I'd i kind of parked the Austria and, and Indy finishes and, you know, the things that Ferrari did that were terrible that year in, in my mind. If anything, that could have worked against this car if I, if I'd placed more thought on those. The thing that, and this is going a bit off topic. The only thing that made 2002 bearable for me was that my dad and I committed to doing uh, the the Bernie Bernie TV. This was the only year that <laughs> F1 Digital Plus was available in uh, in the UK, legitimately at least. And uh, we went for that. So we spent most of the time watching what I think they called was the B feed or track two. And then you just watched all the midfield battles. Of um, course. Which, which were quite exciting. <laughs> Whereas if you had the terrestrial feed and you just start watching the Ferrari's tool round, it was... It was hard work, Uh, but let's move on uh, from one Ferrari to another because in second place is the Ferrari F 2004, of course, the 2004 car, 15 race wins from an 18 race season. Michael Schumacher won all but one of the first 13 races. And we've covered the race that he didn't win in that run, which was Monaco. Ferrari won the constructors title by 143 points this time. Uh, I thought this car would probably win the whole thing. Um, I only put it fourth for reasons that I'll explain in a bit. Ed had it third. Matt put it second. It was only Ben who put this in first place. So Ben, tell us why this was your winner. Yeah, so this this for me is, is, I guess, building on the
2: arguments from 2002. So you've got Ferrari crushing everybody, ruining mine and Matt's childhoods on the one hand. <laughs> I'm so sorry we brought all this back. It's driven you and your dad to Bernie TV to watch Villeneuve (laughs) tugging around somewhere. And obviously F1's out to get Ferrari because, as I said, it's taking the mick a bit. But then two years later, you've got this car, you know, one of the the fastest cars ever, but just so crushingly dominant. You know, they won, what, 15 races out of 18. And there's a, a stat, you know, Schumacher has the joint, most wins in a season uh, still. And that year there was one fewer race than Vettel had to equal that stat in 2013. It was quicker, I think over one lap than the the car Ferrari two years previous had 66% of pole positions. So for me, it's just the absolute peak of that period. I hated Ferrari and Schumacher dominance of F1. And I might've hated it, but I appreciate the significance and the effort and the brilliance that went into it. And for me, this encapsulates that, the, the the end of it as well, thankfully.
0: And I think to pick up on what Ben was saying about how strong the car was, it's almost one that's shrouded by certain statistics because of the qualifying regulations with qualifying on fuel, et cetera you don't necessarily see it if you look at its average advantage. It's nothing extraordinary in this era. It's not right up there among the uh, the big guns simply because it, it didn't need to be. Yet it was. There were a few times when Ferrari had a setback in the race. Monza's a good example. where you sort of thought, oh yeah, B.A.R. might win this. Oh no, not a chance. There was pace in reserve. Ferrari started trying. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. Uh, the one thing I, I will add is that it shows how the passing of time changes things. If we were having this conversation, say six years ago, I would probably argue that the F2004 should be number one, because at that point, it would still have been the fastest Formula One car there ever was. But it's since been superseded. Obviously, the high downforce wide cars of 2017, that rule cycle allowed modern cars to get quicker over a a single lap. But I'd urge anyone who remembers only the, the sort of tedious predictability of it always winning just to watch a little bit of footage of it. These The cars in this period, the sharpness of turning, the nimbleness, the lightness is just absolutely sensational. And Images of this car are sort of seared on my mind for that reason, because again, it encapsulates a certain period of, of Formula 1. It's stunningly, stunningly effective. And I always actually put the 2004 and 2002 Ferraris almost together in my mind, because those are the two years of peak Ferrari, I would say, in that period of, of dominance. And we should also say the 2004 car fixed a lot of the little issues they had with the 2003 Ferrari which wasn't the most successful of Ferraris in that era even though it was tremendously successful so it ticks an awful lot of boxes this car.
3: It's just the kind of mental onslaught that this car put everybody through uh, both fans and and the rest of the field now when I remind them we did this list quite a lists of few weeks ago now i think so i had to remind myself just before recording where i'd put everything and when i saw the 2004 ferrari second i was like oh hang on lots of your argument is based on the quality of opposition and this is a year in which williams and mclaren went basically mad with their de- their designs and you know bar was the closest thing to, to this this car which is which is mad in itself as well so I, it wasn't up against the strongest opposition but the absolute scale of the domination even more than 2002 the, the feeling of schumacher not just not even this car but schumacher will win every single race not just this year but probably forever no one will get back on terms with this team I mean, that is an ironic opinion but that was i was convinced of that this summer that f1 would now be rubbish for at least three years before anybody else had a hope of getting close to it so yeah it was and like ed says actually it's quite a fun car to watch as well but when you watch on boards you as much as i resented it i was also admiring it It was just just so good the only reason it wasn't my number one was was the was the opposition argument i just think when you just to look at the mclaren and williams designs from that year visually you know they were going down the wrong path basically it's such a shame that this car turned up in a way because 2003 was absolutely brilliant and much like 98 crushing my soul after 97 2004 following 2003 was just why have you done this f1 why has someone been allowed to be this dominant after we've had such a brilliant unpredictable open year but yeah
0: i hate it but it was great there's one thing that matt mentioned there which is really important i think it's worth double underlining in terms of other teams going a bit mad in their designs trying to beat ferrari and a big part of the narrative early in 2004 was well is this the year Ferrari really struggles because their F2004 doesn't look like anything special. It's all a bit evolutionary. And it did evolve a lot of the ideas that were introduced on the 2003 car, but optimised them all, cast, cast titanium gearbox, rear suspension was quite clever with mountings on the engine, some damper trickery, and it refined all of that. But the narrative was, they've been too conservative, but teams like Williams with this amazing walrus nose design that looks so obvious, have they stolen a march? Well, no, they hadn't, because what Ferrari had done is just have everything so well together, refine everything to the nth degree to make this car. It wasn't about, oh, here's a clever idea and a magic bullet. It was, do you know what? We've got resources. We've got people. We're going to make this all work together absolutely brilliantly. And others who were just throwing ideas at a dartboard almost, thinking, oh, this will be the clever trick. This will be the clever trick. No, the trick is now everything, and that's what modern Formula One is Today it's about getting everything together, and Ferrari really set the tone for that, and that's why the 2004 Ferrari is kind of the apotheosis of this great Ferrari period, and sums up the kind of Formula One that we were moving into. Yeah, I think Ed's summed up a really
2: important reason why this car's so high in my list. The quality of opposition is obviously important, but you've you've still got some big players having a go at this stage. Obviously, Renault's on the way up as we've discussed. Uh, but I just think the fact that everyone was getting so desperate to, to beat Ferrari that they were scrabbling around for magic ideas to close the gap. You know, Formula 1 has always been about looking at your opposition and trying to copy the best ideas and make them work and as well as finding your own kind of special ideas that people haven't thought of yet. And just whatever anyone did, even though the rules had changed, Ferrari just came back and walloped everybody again. And I just, I just think, even though the opposition was kind, looked like it was lacking. There was no reason why it should have been. Everything was set up for them to, to close the gap even further, and they didn't. Ferrari just went,
1: oh, here we go. We'll show you what we're really made of. I think that's a that's a key point. Matt mentioned two thousand and three is a great season. Mark Hughes has said on this show many times that the two thousand and four car was really Ferrari's response all the rule changes for 2003 because all those changes came in so late Ferrari had optimized the car for what they still had in 2002 they got caught out I do agree the reason I mark this car down though is that I think it's it is flattered by its main opposition going insane basically um you know the We've done an episode on the Walrus Williams and how that design perhaps made its way over in the bag or the back pocket of a designer that left Ferrari and had worked on it there and Ferrari had rejected it. Um, And we've done an episode about the McLaren MP4 18, the unraced car of 2003. And Adrian Newey says the uh, A-spec of the MP4 19 in 2004 was just the rejected 18, but they changed the badge and tried to force it into race spec for 2004 so the thing for me is that the ferrari was great but if you'd said to ferrari at the end of 2003 oh next year you've just got to be better than bar and renault even if those teams did take a step forward the the the, the chasm they had to close to ferrari already they were never going to do that so i don't think the the ferrari really had to beat anyone
0: i think it's also worth briefly mentioning a name we haven't used yeah in this podcast which is Rory Byrne who's the other guy along with Adrian Newey who really defines this era aerodynamically obviously he was responsible for the Ferraris Rory Byrne was at Benetton back in the mid-90s as well before he moved across with the Schumacher Exodus so he's someone who perhaps doesn't get talked about as much as he should do and he was absolutely essential in a slightly less conspicuous way than Adrian Newey but he was absolutely a critical part of this and Again, Rory Byrne, once he went into semi-retirement, he's, I think he's still got a nominal Ferrari role. And every now and again, they wheel him out and they say he's going to be taking a look at things. But post-Rory Byrne, Ferrari have struggled and could be coincidence. But when you've got someone like that, they're quite hard to replace. So he's a really important and influential figure who does deserve to be celebrated in this era. And it's reflected by the fact that several of his cars are in this list, many of them very high up.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. Rory Byrne deserves a mention. A lovely man as well. I, I had him on. Uh, I was on the same table as him at the Autosport Awards one year, and he's very pleasant, understated company. Let's move on then to number one. Uh, I imagine. All of our guests know which car it's going to be. I would think most of our audience know which car it's going to be. So um, I'll leave it up to Johnny, our podcast manager and editor, to decide if he wants a drum roll to be playing over this bit. But it is, of course, the Williams FW14B of 1992. It won 10 races out of 16 that year, ahead of McLaren's five. Nigel Mansell won his driver's title in Hungary in August At the time, Mansell set new records for winning the first five races of the year and nine races in a single season. We've just mentioned Rory Byrne. This was Adrian Newey's first championship winning car. Renault's first title winner as well, coming back uh, in 89 uh, with its V10 with Williams. This car was 1.5% faster than McLaren that year, so the second biggest margin of the era and that was of course still a works honda powered mclaren uh not not the same as the the customer fords that we mentioned earlier with the gap the 93 williams enjoyed three of us put this car at number one the odd one out is ben who only had it third behind two ferraris we've just discussed so ben before the rest of us fawn over this car for the rest of the podcast tell us why we're wrong (laughs) i think it's probably quite a nuanced
2: argument because uh when I look back at my notes, I can't really see a reason why you could argue against this car. I love how many car. times this has happened. I love how
1: many times this has happened. In you know, this, as Matt said, you did these lists a few weeks ago, and now you're all being surprised by how yeah, you voted.
2: I'm scanning it for some some negativity, and I can't really find any. <laughs> you know, this is you know, it's an iconically successful car. Obviously, you know, very clever with its trickery, clever suspension, clever aero. Needed a brave driver to get the best out of it. I was never really that big a fan of Nigel Mansell, didn't rate him that highly, but that's not really an argument to say this car should be low down the list. If anything, it's an argument to say it should be higher up the list. And uh, of course, there's data from his pole app at Silverstone where he's you know, obliterated the field and that's, that still gets studied in motorsport engineering courses even to this day. So this is an icon. Uh, maybe I just feel like this era of Formula One is not as competitive as the, the later era that we've just been discussing. And that just edges the Ferraris uh, ahead for me. Obviously, we've talked as well about Formula 1 and was being out to get Ferrari at that stage and do anything in its power to to rein them back. Whereas this, is, this era with Williams' success is a bit more unfettered. I guess the 14B is kind of fixing what was wrong with the the 91 Williams which probably should have been able to win the title which just wasn't reliable enough in the early part of the season so in my mind that kind of devalued it slightly because I felt like it wasn't brand new it was just what should have come a year earlier but these are quite flimsy arguments and I'd have to say you know you can you can argue the toss probably among any of the top three or four
0: cars because they're all great aren't they just to demolish Ben's last vestiges of an argument against it, I think what this car does is it ticks every single box. It's got a great story to it. It's the interim car that wasn't an interim car, wasn't it? It was so good they could keep racing it. We talked about the FW15C. Well, what were the FW15 and 15B? Well, they were cars that never raced. The 15C could have raced in 14, uh, in 92, but the FW14B was so good they didn't need it. So that's how far ahead of the rest this car was it was massively innovative. Active suspension was not a new idea, but Williams was the first team to get it working, consistently reliable, to use it in the right way, platform control to make the aero work well. So that allowed Adrian Newey to be better with his aero concept, evolving an aero concept that had started back in the March days and that was setting the template for Formula One. Traction control, obviously, was a big part of it. It's also a car that's was supremely dominant. It's the only car in the Bring Back V10s era that had the fastest single lap every single weekend of the year. There was one race they didn't get a pole in Canada, but Mansell said a faster time in practice than Senna's pole time. So that's massively significant. It's the only universally fastest car of this era. And in fact, if you look through F1 history, the only time that's happened before are a couple of instances early on with Alfa Romeo in 1551 50 and then Ferrari in kind of 1956 1952 since then it just doesn't happen it was that dominant it inspired great confidence in a driver like mansell who knew it was going to stick it had great little ideas like they uh, used the uh the active suspension to cut back the drag on the straights so had a little button they could press to cut out some of the rake that was that was in the car so it was faster in a straight line so it was the culmination of all these ideas and just acts as a kind of end stop today it is an iconic car Sebastian Vettel's got one people love seeing it when he was driving it and it's just a car that leaps to mind I think for so so many people so it just ticks all of those boxes it manages to be crushingly successful iconic important innovative does the lot I think Ben's argument
3: was the absolute right one. It was a a car so good, it made someone like Mansell, of all people, look completely dominant against against Senna. I think I managed to fit a dig at Nigel Mansell's every Bring Back V10's appearance, just because I abandoned a kind of journalistic professionalism, just thinking of myself as a teenager and how much I despised that man and everything he stood for and everything he brought to Formula One. So the fact that he could look that good that season just shows that the car was a step above everything else by a long way. but, okay, that's that's my Larry argument. Otherwise, I agree with everything Ed says. It was a lot of elements of that car came together very well. And it peaked a lot of technical concepts, introduced some new ones as well. Like Ed says, active suspension had been throwing people into the wall since the mid-80s. It, it, was, it was not new at all, but Williams refined it to that degree. And also the, the speed of turnaround to get from a McLaren-Honda era to a Williams-Renault era was actually massively impressive without mclaren or honda particularly dropping the ball williams just stepped up to another level very quickly and as much as i i i just resent the fact mansell has a world championship so much even now i'm i'm over 40 i still think it's uh it's it's just wrong but i do love the fact i do love his qualifying laps from that year because it was that example of a car that lets a driver even that fast i admit he was fast believe that something almost impossible was possible, it can inspire that confidence and commitment. So on those grounds, what it brought out of a driver who I grudgingly admit was very good, but made him look three times as good. Yeah, it's a it's a very, very, very special car. So... Yeah, gosh. Yeah, I reread some recent. Oh, Glenn's waving it at me, and it's got like a Mansell figure. I can hear his voice. I can hear that whiny voice when he's just one by forty seconds in the car, two seconds lap quicker than I was going. Finding a reason to make it sound like it was hard. Yeah. I read some Mansell quotes about that season recently, and I just got angry all over again.
0: I'll just inject a little bit of balance into this uh, on the Mansell <laughs> on the Mansell debate. Oh, goodness, Mansell was the perfect driver for this car because he was able to drive it. With that confidence and know it would work there was no feeling from the springs and dampers no compliance you just had to drive it knowing what it would do Patrese couldn't do that if you look over the season on average pace Patrese's like one percent slower than Mansell so Mansell was getting the most out of this car if it was Patrese on his own in this car it would have been a different story yeah I'm sure he'd still won the championship in it but Mansell exploited the absolute maximum from it and he was the ideal driver for for doing it and just that combination of mansell plus williams i think makes this car one that nobody else could get near they just knew they couldn't do anything about it they could even afford on so good was this car to spend a load of extra weight to have everything they needed to make it work it was like 20 kilos overweight something like that so it was that good and yeah mansell was so so important to, to doing that because he knew he could have faith in it. And that was no easy thing because he'd been around at Lotus when they were messing about with Active Ride 10 years before and having all sorts of problems with it failing and not working, not being reliable. And what Williams did with Active is refine it and make it reliable, usable. And they understood how to use it in so many effective ways that it totally transformed the game.
1: Yeah, good stuff there, Ed. My my Nigel Mansell figurine on my desk that I was just waving while Matt was was talking him down is, is much happier now. I agree. This this is a game it's a game-changing car, a car that moved the goalposts in F1. I think that's why so many of us have put it at, at number 1. The McLaren Honda era is so iconic. This is the car that brought that down. I did have uh one question I wanted to throw out there. Firstly, I mentioned at the start of the episode in that first question, we covered two of my three favorite cars, the the 1990 Ferrari 91 Jordan. This is my favorite, the 1992 Williams. It's why I have a little model with a a tiny Nigel Mansell lifting a trophy next to it on my desk. But uh, Matt, maybe you can answer this or the others can chime in afterwards. Three of us have put this at number one. Is there any risk that we are just getting too misty eyed about something that was much longer ago than those dominant Ferraris.
3: Yeah, I think there I, I genuinely think there is, even though I put it number one as well. And this this did factor into my into my thinking quite a lot. Tail end of this era, I was already a sort of grown up and and, you know, I was doing a, the kind of I was in the same kind of website news kind of world i am now a much lower level but i I was i was a journalist basically that's what i'm trying to say so i was looking at that cars like that a lot more quizzically whereas early 90s i was like 10 11 years old just looking at them as a fan and being wowed by things and i think it's hard not to bring a little bit of that into it i think you know i put the 92 93 williams pretty high i put the 89 mclaren very high i do i just not know as much about them as cars that i actually looked at with a professional eye 10 and a bit years later that I I do think that's that's very possible also not sure that I care
0: (laughs) it's an interesting point especially when you factor in that there's similarities with the FW 14b and the Ferrari F2004 in that there was coverage at the time in 92 that the Williams was too dominant and it was boring because it was just walking away with it so there was still this big kickback against it at the time as well so they were kind of doing the same thing, which is why I've ultimately got them both in, in my top threes. But it it does also sum up that there is, when it comes to greatness of cars, there is a certain time specificness to it because everyone has different relationships with different cars. I mean, some of these cars were racing when I was a kid, some of them in my professional career. Obviously, there's Formula One cars I've seen week in, week out, on track from later years that I'm very familiar with. So everyone has a different connection to it and it's when you come up with that word great rather than best great i think brings in a lot more of that emotional argument and that kind of thing and it may well be that for some people for someone who's say 10 years younger the ferrari f2004 does that and someone's listening to this and thinking no you're all wrong and uh, there's no right answer that's the absolute joy of it and probably it is era specific
2: this might well be why this car didn't make it to number one in my list because I didn't really get into Formula 1 until late 93, early 94, so I missed this car.
1: So this car couldn't suck away your love for F1 like all the others No,
2: (laughs) no, no, it couldn't. And even though the 2002, 2004 f did suck away my love for Formula 1, with a passing of time and greater age and now obviously some professional responsibility, I can divorce my emotional response at the time from my appreciation of what those cars did with maybe the 92 Williams. It's just more of an echo of history for me. It's not something I saw at the time. It's not something I studied in any great detail, but I do appreciate that it had a massive impact on Formula One. And in fact, I remember interviewing Paddy Lowe, it's almost 10 years ago now when Formula One was looking to bring back active suspension as a solution to some, you know, made up problem or other. I can't exactly remember and he talked about his fondness for that time and how innovative Williams were being leading the way, obviously. And But he even referenced things like exhaust, exhaust blowing of the diffusers, which had come back into vogue at the time I was interviewing him only a few years prior and obviously it had helped Red Bull and Renault dominate the V8 era of Formula 1, the last part of the V8 era of Formula 1. And he said, I was kicking myself because that's something we did at Williams. So he remembered that that's something they could have got ahead on when he was at McLaren, but they just didn't because it was so long ago. And I I feel like having had this discussion and you realise there are echoes of that car, even in much later and more recent periods of Formula One, Ed talked about using the platform to reduce drag on the straights. And of course, teams are still trying to find passive ways to do that even now. Um, so clearly that car, even though it wasn't a first-hand one for me, has had an absolutely
0: extraordinary and long impact on how Formula One operates even now. And to take that blown diffuser point one step further, I remember interviewing Adrian Newey some years ago, when he thought actually exhaust blowing could be a good thing to do here with Red Bull, one of the first things he did was ask Renault to dig out all the old work and research they did in this era just as a little bit of a starting point doesn't all directly apply but it's just here's a little bit of a body of knowledge that was developed that we can start to use and of course Renault was supreme in the early 2010s at creating engine maps that were very very well with exhaust blown diffusers so it's not just a conceptual link there's a direct knowledge-based link there from the FW14B to something that happened 20 years later
3: and when you look at a technology transfer from between eras like that, now it's massively oversimplifying to say that like Newey in '92 was working with a with a biro and a sheet of paper and no computers, and that, that those were brought in in the 2000s. But there was a huge, an enormous leap in what in the resources teams could put into trying ideas before they even got anywhere near the car. As time went on, the cars that we that we see in the modern era and the end of the V10 era were much more refined before they hit the track than the stuff that was being trial and error on track in the late 80s early 90s so the fact that that Williams was so advanced and so refined from with far fewer technical resources relatively to make that happen is, is just so impressive.
2: But I think the flip side of that argument and perhaps might be another reason why the Ferraris edge it for me is that by the opposite end of that era you have got so much more resource knowledge computing power simulation tools at your disposal to to fight the competition, so I feel like the overall level of Formula One is higher. Twenty years later, or ten years later, I should say, ten or twelve years later, and it shouldn't be anyway near as easy for Ferrari to dominate Formula One in the way they did.
1: Yeah, that's a good argument. Um, it's the 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 exhaust blown diffuser thing. Williams obviously take this car to a lot of different events. You'll quite often find it somewhere either in action. Or or on static display, if you see it and you get a chance to basically crouch down behind it as I have, you can see you can see where the exhausts were were exiting into the into the diffuser. It's, it's brilliant. It's obviously simpler than what Red Bull did in the V8 era, but you can see it. it's, it's it's yeah it's a beautiful car to just admire in person. I, I I think it's great that Sebastian Vettel had it out in action at the British Grand Prix on on a a more sustainable fuel as well and, and and it was great it was great for us i think that sebastian started a debate there about if there is a route back to these these sort of engines um we the name the name of our show would tell you what our position is on that but the last thing i will say about this car is i covered world series by renault formula renault 3.5 for a few years and obviously renault brought a lot of their old F1 cars and along to some events for demos and that sort of thing. There was an event at Paul Ricard where they brought an FW14B and it didn't run. It was meant to run, but it didn't run. It had its own garage. It was decked out in Williams colors of the time. I was walking down up and down the pit lane, talking to the teams that were racing that weekend. And then I happened across a garage, an empty garage that had this car in it. And I reckon I stood there for about 10 minutes just admiring it, looking at it from all the angles, walking around, taking pictures, getting up close. And it is, to my eternal regret, probably it's, we're 10 years later now, I can't tell you how much I regret not sitting in it. Because nobody ever appeared. And all the time I was there, no one came to check on it. I am certain that I could have got away with sitting in that car for quite a while. And and just just to sit there for a moment and... Even though it would mean Matt hated me, I would imagine I was Nigel Mansell about to drive it out of the pit lane, and I kick myself constantly for not for not doing
0: it. But also that reaction when Vettel demoed the car at Silverstone this year, the crowd it drew was immense. Obviously, the spectators loved it. There were people working in the paddock who loved seeing it as well. And I think the the fact Vettel has got enthusiasm for it. it shows that it's a it's a kind of universal car because there could be people saying, "Well, this is a." British podcast a load of British journalists all caught up in the British team and the British driver but I don't I don't think it is because the car is the star when it comes to the FW14B it represents a certain kind of Formula One and a technological path that Formula One also turned away from but it also represents an aerodynamic path that was being taken and, and setting the tone for Formula One so it represents so many technical stories of what is a technical sport in a way that I'm not sure any other car that we considered on this list does, which is just another reason why it, it, it's, it's so important. And I think it does just resonate with people. It doesn't
1: hurt the fact it looks really good as well. It definitely does. We'll leave it there then for our top 10 cars of the V10 era. But before we go, let's quickly recap them for you. And no top 10 countdown would be complete without some dramatic music, of course. <laughs> number 10 was the Williams FW19 Number 9 was the Renault R25 In 8th was the Benetton B195 Number 7 the Williams FW18 Number 6 was the Williams FW15C Number 5 was the McLaren MP413 Number 4 the McLaren MP4-5 and The podium was the Ferrari F2002 in third, the F2004 in second and the winner was of course the Williams FW14B of 1992. make sure you send us in your top 10s as well using the hashtag bringbackv 10s on twitter and remember to keep it to drivers championship winners if you want the same criteria we used thanks to matt ed and ben for joining us for this new format if you liked listening to us debating a top 10 then let us know and send us your suggestions for things you think we could rank in the future but that's it series six of bring back v10s if you're part of the race members club we'll have a few off-season surprises for you in the coming weeks otherwise we'll see you in early 2023 for series seven
0: the athletic